From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez. Figuring out how to talk about race is hard for everyone. So, in the spirit of helpfulness, we've collaborated with LAS.com on the Racism 101 Project. Today we'll be talking about how to be an ally, code switching for cultural survival, and we'll deconstruct the phrase defund the police without minimizing the message. It's Racism 101 ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Thanks for being with us. Today, we're devoting our show to LAist's Racism 101 Project. During the height of last summer's protests over police violence, KPCC's events team launched Unheard LA, a deeper listen, to do just that, listen. Participants told their stories, and through that, we heard from many people of color who said they were tired of being asked by their well-meaning white friends about what they should be reading or watching or doing about systemic racism. Racism 101 came out of that. Now, it's a resource guide and a place to ask fellow Angelinos any questions related to race without judgment. You can find it at laist.com slash racism101. Since it launched in the fall, dozens of people have written in, and we reached out to Angelinos from all kinds of backgrounds to help answer questions and lead this conversation around race. So today, we're bringing it to take two and speaking with some of these folks, uh, rapper poets, several performers and actors, all of them activists within their communities. Their lived experiences reflect these issues we've been talking about for months now. This hour, we're going to talk about code switching for survival, the legacy of slavery, and we'll deconstruct construct what the phrase defund the police really means. And we're going to begin with the question that really started it all, how to be an ally to people of color. Joining me now is Kearney Makartachan, a panelist for our Racism 101 project. She's a black Armenian actress, singer, and educator living in Los Angeles. Kearney, so let's start with this. What does being an ally mean to you today in 2021? For me, an ally is someone who, first of all, If you're an ally to a cause, the first thing you have to be doing is making sure that you are centering the voices of the people and communities that you are supporting with your allyship and taking notes from them first. And second, you have to make sure that the work that you are doing is sustained activism. Let me ask you this, because right off the bat, you said centering the voices. And and to me, only because I, you know, I, I saw so much of this, not only online, but also on television, anywhere you could find it. It seemed like centering the voices to me would be a very polite way to tell people to shut up and listen. Is that is that is that am I on the right track yeah. with that? <laughs> yeah, it's making sure that, for example, you're not coming into a movement and making yourself the face of this movement, making your voice the important voice as a white individual. Like you need to actually take notes and listen to and support. And I always like to say center and uplift the voices of the people from the communities that you're supposed to be supporting, because at the end of the day, it's not about you. Yeah, because the the thing about it is, is that, yeah, it's easy to say that it's the right thing to do. But why is it the right thing to do? Why does it matter as much as it matters? And unless you know that, how do you know that it's the right thing to do? Yeah, exactly. You you have to be willing to put in the work and willing to do difficult work. And that means sometimes looking at yourself and looking at 
um, your own privileges or looking at the way that you specifically benefit from systems of oppression. I can speak from my own experience being someone who is, I'm Black and Armenian, so I'm mixed race. I also am light-skinned, so I benefit from both light-skinned and mixed-race privileges. That was another thing that kind of kept coming up with the Black Lives Matter movement was you had other people of color from other marginalized communities saying, well, what about us? What about this? What about that? And it's like, okay, what we're talking about right now is very specific to how Black bodies are brutalized in this country. So please take a step back. Considering what's going on right now in our country, what's the importance, would you say, of allies in our society right now? Allyship is critical because especially like when you're seeing what we saw this past summer, I always was telling people, if you're someone who's an ally, especially if you're someone who is white, like physically show up, physically show up and put your body on the line because your white body is privileged and is less likely to face the brutality and violence that black and brown bodies, BIPOC bodies would face in these situations. That's the real critical work of allyship. It's not just posting a picture. Like it's the really hard work. I love my theater community, but there's a lot of people who are performative activists in the arts and entertainment and they they say that they're liberal. But like I've had people say comments where they're like, oh, you're so lucky because they're only casting people of color right now. Or, oh, you're so lucky because like (laughs) as a white man, I'm just, I don't know if I'm ever going to work again. Like these are things people have actually said. (laughs) People have said this to my face. Like, it's so great. It's so great if you're not white, da, da, da. I'm never going to work Throwing the privilege right back at you, Kearney. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's like, more people are being brought to the table. The actual work that we are seeing and the creators of those works are starting to be more representative of our actual community. So Kearney, it sounds sounds like when, when someone wants to be an ally, they should maybe stop that evaluation right at their own borders. In other words, don't try to apply it to someone else because you have no idea about that other person. Just keep it right within yourself to make sure that you're evaluating exactly what you need to do to be as helpful as possible. Yes, absolutely. Because when you think too large as an ally, when you start thinking, okay, how am I going to solve all of this? And how am I going to talk to everyone and shame everyone because they're not as good of an ally as me or they're not as woke as me? Like, it was like how you started to see all of these companies coming out and like with their their graphic for equality or coming out with something they were changing, like getting rid of Aunt Jemima pancakes or whatever, like... It was like, okay, um, sure, uh, I guess that's helpful, um, but that's really not what we're asking. Like, people are asking for the police to stop murdering us, and you you changing who's on the box of the pancakes. Like, that's really... Um, but isn't that a start? Isn't that a start for a company to say, okay, we know we've got something we shouldn't have, and this is our first step into trying to be an ally, to at least do this so that it's not a thing anymore? It is a start. The thing is, it just becomes like a performative moment. Like, yeah, that's fine. But it was also like, that was really not what anyone in the Black community was talking about 
was those pancakes, you know? <laughs> so it was just, <laughs> it, 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 it's definitely things like that are a start, but it has to be bigger than that. We should be trying to do more and to do little things every day, every day. We're talking to Karenine Mercado-Chan, a member of LAist Racism 101 team, telling us about how to be an ally. So speaking on, on companies and, and corporations, we've seen what Apple and Google and others have done by taking Parler off their platforms because of the violence that came out of messages posted there. And Facebook is now very publicly grappling with whether to ban uh, Donald Trump forever, as other sites such as Twitter have. Uh, is that an example of a corporation being an ally in this case, of doing something more than just, say, changing a logo. It's hard because with a lot of um, corporate large companies like that, it it would take a lot for me to use the term ally or allyship. I would say like, okay, that's a good move. It's kind of like with what we've seen recently from Twitter and Facebook and all of these social media sites suddenly have decided that now they're going to ban Donald Trump's account after all of this damage has already been done. It's one of those things where it's, to me, feels like it's a little too little too late. I know everyone was like, oh, that's great. But you could have done this years ago. Like there are things that he's been saying that have been very harmful for years. So it's it's a tough thing for me. I, I always take any sort of action that's done by a corporate body with a grain of salt. Yeah, well, you know, they, they're they making profits, I guess, and they got shareholders, so maybe that's their that's who they're the allies for the most, I suppose, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Now, well, let me ask you this, uh, Kearney, because let's just say there's someone out there who's been nervous, maybe, about trying to be an ally, but they're not sure exactly where to begin. So how do they keep doing what they want to do in a way that is only helpful and not hurtful? There are so many resources online. I always tell white people that they should organize and work with um, White People for Black Lives because that's an organization that works directly with Black Lives Matter, but they keep it as a separate space. Seek out that information without putting the labor on someone else, and then it will all follow. Everything that you're learning will come, and you'll know how you can actually help serve the cause. Even when you need to take a rest, there's always someone else who will be doing that work. So don't feel like, okay, I need to just do everything all the time. And I know I'm an awful person to say that because I can't even take my own advice. I never do that. <laughs> um, I have a very hard, hard time resting. Let me ask um, you, let me ask you one more thing really quick. Yeah. Who would you like to see step up and be better allies this year? As always white women, because I feel like Oftentimes they feel that because of their gender, they can't perpetuate the um, racism and white supremacy that they do, or they feel like they don't benefit from the system when they do. I think a lot of times they don't understand how their own white femininity has been used against Black people specifically and Black men specifically in this country, they as a group really need to, to step up. So if you're a white woman, please call out your sisters and check on them and talk to them because it most certainly is not Black women's jobs. Not anymore. <laughs> We're not your magical Negro. So please stop. Charity Mugger-Chan is a black Armenian actress, singer, educator, and member of a Racism 101 project, and proud Angelina. I can't forget that part. Uh, Kearney, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. 
Coming up on take two, vamos a hablar de una cosa que bueno, it's hard to understand. Se llama code switching. It's what I'm doing in este momento. And it goes way beyond just idioma. It's also about cultural survival. That's next on take two in 60 segundos. Stay with us. Back down with a special edition of Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Amy Martinez. Today we're talking with several contributors to LAist Racism 101 Project about issues that they and many other people of color experience each and every day, such as code switching. Now that's something that we do a lot, even if we don't always notice it. One of the most common ways people code switch is by using a professional voice at work than talking at home with friends or family in a much more relaxed way. For many people, it's as simple as that. But for others, code switching can be a survival strategy in a dangerous or even potentially deadly situation. You can see a dramatic example of that in the 2018 Spike Lee film Black Klansman. John David Washington plays Ron Stallworth, the first black detective in the Colorado Springs Police Department. Now, in this clip, he calls the Grand Wizard of the KKK, David Duke. Aren't you ever concerned of some smart aleck calling you pretending to be white? <laughs> no. I can always tell when I'm talking to a Negro. How so? Take you, for example, Ron. Me? Yeah. I mean, I can tell that you're a pure Aryan white man from the way you pronounce certain words. Can you give me any examples? Yeah, take the word uh, R. Pure Aryan like you or I would pronounce it correctly. R. Negro pronounces it Ara. Did you ever notice that? It's like Ara, you gonna fry up that... Crispy fried chicken soul, brother. Now, in that movie, which was based on true events, what the code-switching Stallworth did on the phone enabled him to infiltrate the white supremacist group. For more on code-switching in real life, we have another member of the Racism 101 Project, Matthew Cuban Hernandez. He's an educator and poet who identifies as Afro-Indigenous Latinx. I don't just try to teach poetry to kids. I try to teach them how to walk in their own skin. I try to teach them how to own their skin when they walk. And sometimes, sometimes I stand in front of a classroom and my students look like abandoned homes in the neighborhood the city has forgotten. That was Matthew performing in the KPCC Unheard LA event. Uh, Matthew, welcome to Take Two. Such an honor, A. Thanks for having me. Now, I said up top that it's something we all do. But to you, to you, Matthew, what does code switching mean to you? Well, 
formerly I do a lot of my teaching in juvenile incarceration centers and code switching there can be a lot of different things. Working with, you know, gang involved youth, there's a lot of code switching that happens just depending on what neighborhood you might be in. But a lot of times we just talk about like what type of atmosphere you're bringing, right? You can't always bring an atmosphere that you use for survival in your local neighborhood to a work station or to a classroom. <laughs> and so we kind of we kind of work with that a lot. So, okay, so tell us about some situations in your life where code switching comes into play, maybe in your personal life and and, and why you've uh, come to rely on it. Well, obviously, like there's the conversations that I'll have professionally, whether it be on a radio interview or on stage as a performer. And then there's conversations I have with my friends. One of the places that it really puts in is in a classroom again. There's things that you can say to regular people that you couldn't say to a youth who's locked up at the moment, right? When they're surrounded by maybe rival gangs or rival mentalities, right? They're constantly trying to switch the language to be something that is comfortable for people around. But we talk about it in in, the, in, in all kinds of aspects, right? Me having the name and the background that I have when I get on a phone call with whether it be my landlord or whether it be someone who oh, wants no. to book me for a college, <laughs> I might change up some of my vernacular to make them feel a little bit more comfortable or feel like they're talking to a certain person that they couldn't use certain things with. So Matthew, I want to I want to get it clear right now. We're on the radio on 89.3 KPCC. Am I getting code switching Matthew right now or is uh, Matthew keeping it 100 right now? You know, I, I appreciate that. And I think often for myself, I find a balance, right? Uh, <laughs> and you can get a little bit like when I start to smile when I talk, right? That's usually there where you're you getting authentic, Matthew, right? Um, if I'm if I'm a little tighter <laughs> and, and being a little bit more serious, you're getting you're getting the professional guy. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard, though, right? Because you, you, we float in and out of this. And sometimes we don't realize that maybe we're floating into a space that we shouldn't be floating into. Absolutely. You know, my father was born in Cuba. My mother was born in Honduras. And so them coming to this country, they had to code switch so much. Even my father, his native language is Spanish, but you don't hear an accent in him at all because he used so much of just adapting and and really whitewashing himself in order to fitting into the environment and the safety of this country. Has there been any particular examples in your life that you can remember where it specifically benefited you in that moment? You know, one of the things that that I see it come out a lot in it and is when I'm speaking to law enforcement, mm. um, honestly, uh, I had two students who were detained by law enforcement on the sidewalk because they jaywalked and they called me and it was a block from my house. So I walked over there and uh, I put on a button up shirt before I walked over there, too. And I was like, what seems to be the problem, officer? These are two of my students here. Uh, why are they being detained at the moment? Um, can, can you can you tell me, you know, what seems to be the issue? And literally it, it completely de-escalated whatever situation was happening at that moment. And it, it could have turned into something very different. And that's something that's that's the life saving part of this, right? Because I, I remember Matthew when I was uh, out of high school in college at LA City College. I was on the baseball team there. Our coach had a talk with us about a lot of different things. It was mostly about baseball, but he also wanted us to make sure that when we ran into someone in authority, whether it meant a school administrator, another say coach in baseball, or law enforcement, that we didn't use certain words and we replaced them with words that wouldn't feel as disrespectful or threatening. So I'll give you an example, Matthew, right off the bat. He made sure that none of us on the baseball team ever said, yeah, it was always yes, Mm. 
Because if you say, yeah, that's really relaxed. That's something you'd say with your homies, but not to someone in authority. Because wow. he wanted us to make sure that we weren't saying that to, say, the campus police department. And that's something that, I mean, I, I guess we don't know it until someone tells us what we have to say and what we have to be careful for. My gosh, absolutely. And I mean, there's this there's undertone of like, oh, this person of color is is giving me attitude. You're giving me sass. And we, we've seen that happen in, in regular things in, in terrible situations. Look at Sandra Bland, for example, yeah. because she didn't have a certain tone or a certain attitude. We know what happened with her story. You know, I think about that often. I mean, we, we, we know that in communities of color, especially in black communities where it's the talk that's given to young, go, young yeah. kids, you know, where it's literally the way you speak to someone can mean life or death. And it's, it's literally that black and white sometimes. When you talk to the kids about the talk, the, you know, the kids that you work with, how do they respond? Is this something they already know about or are they tired of maybe hearing it uh, over and over again? It's a combination. You know, sometimes you have you have students who who are going the opposite direction to overcorrect in a way and just saying like, no, nah, they're never going to get this respect from me because they don't give me respect. Those are the younger kids. Sometimes yeah. you have kids that are like, yeah, I know. I, I understand that in this situation, I have to carry myself like this. And, and, you know, we talk about this. I'm like, you wouldn't speak to your judge like that because this judge has so much power over you in that moment. We're, we constantly keep revisiting it. Because we want these young people to say, look, you have the power to reshape your own narrative. And that's kind of, I, I hate coming back into like what I do for a living, but that's the power of poetry is right. that you get to represent yourself and your language in a very different and powerful way. We also had to make sure, Matthew, we said no, not nah. Oh, we also mm. had to make sure we said, mm. do you know what I mean, too? I, you know, <laughs> he made sure that we enunciated each and everything, and, and he wanted us to do it all the time. We're talking to Matthew Cuban Hernandez. He's a member of LAist Racism 101 team, and he's talking with us about code switching. Now, for people who grew up in bilingual households, the code switching happens often very fast and very furious in two languages. Let's hear our comedian George Lopez explain that. You could vote English as the official language, but it'll never work because we're always going to speak Spanglish. It's too late. That's all we've talked in our house for years. ¿Qué pasó, tía? I went to the store to buy those zapatos that I like, pero estaban gone. Los shoes amarillos, sí, estaban todos sold out. Matthew, I don't know about your house, but in my house, we did that all the time. And thinking back, I don't know why we were in our home. There was no need to code switch. So why did we do that? Why did I do that? Matthew, tell me, why did I do that? It's tough, man. Uh, you know, in my household, you know, we never got that opportunity. Being that my father came to this country, my mother and father came to this country so young and dealt with so much oppression off the rip, they were like actively kind of, again, they were like, no, we want you to understand this language really clear before you understand this language, which is wild. To me, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, we, we take different aspects from different, it's like the cafeteria mindset. We take all these different things <laughs> and make this really, really dope jambalaya, which is Spanglish, which is the culture that we have here in this country. You know, it seems like teaching code switching could be a little tricky because you want to help someone maintain their identity, but also know how to navigate as many social spheres as possible. So I'm wondering, Matthew, do you think that there's a cultural cost when it comes to code switching? Yeah, yeah, I, I think there definitely can be. Like, I think about my own 
personal experiences and how much, and I keep using this phrase, whitewashing, but I, I mean that to be adapting to the power structure that you're surrounded in. And I think that my family did that so much that we lost things outside of, you know, just the food that we would eat or the music that we would listen to. There's so many cultural aspects that I don't know what it is to be a, a Latinx Afro-Indigenous man. And that in itself is language that I'm just now understanding to combat what I grew up with and the cultural erasure of, of what it means to be who I am, because I'm very, I'm very mixed in a lot of different things, but I don't feel like I got an opportunity to know those so well because of how much my family grew up code switching to survive in the environment we were in. Matthew, at the heart of it all, how do you square that really the only reason that I can see code switching existing is because of an inherent racism over language and culture? I think that that's part of it. But, you know, when you really think about it, it's a power structure thing, right? There's so many uh, women in workplace that have to code switch, that have to make themselves more lighter, have to make themselves not seem as angry, not as formidable to maybe their male uh, superiors in the workplace, right? Mm. It To me, it's a power structure thing. When you're adapting to whatever that power is in the situation. Matthew, can you ever envision a day where code switching is not as necessary, at least in terms of survival for people of color? What, what could that day one day sound like? I think it's starting to happen. The more things become pushed out in the social aspects, whether it be entertainment, whether it be the music we listen to, the TV shows and all the different things and aspects that come from that, the more that it's not so much of a caricature of the culture that they're trying to represent, and it's just people being people, I think the more that it'll just become a thing of the past. Matthew Cuban Hernandez is an educator, poet, and performer, and also a panelist for LA's Racism 101 Project. Matthew, thank you very much. Thank you, I appreciate it. There's an argument that the phrase defund the police was one of the statements that really defined 2020. It was also politicized, twisted, scoffed at. Even Barack Obama weighed in on defund the police. So we're going to deconstruct the phrase defund the police without minimizing the message. That's next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with this special edition of Take Two, I'm E. Martinez. Today, we're devoting our show to the Racism 101 Project, which LAS launched following the social justice protests that were triggered by the killing of George Floyd. Naturally, policing was a huge focus of these demonstrations, and one phrase stood out above all else. The defund the police movement has been a hot-button issue that's been politicized, manipulated, and misunderstood. Opponents say it would lead to higher crime or even anarchy, while supporters have struggled to find a united message that clearly describes its goals. Even former President Barack Obama weighed in on the issue. If you believe, as, as I do, that we should be able to reform the criminal justice system so that it's not biased and treats everybody fairly, I guess you can use a snappy slogan like, 
defund the police, but you know you've lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. Joining us to discuss all of this is another member of the Racism 101 Project, O'Neill Cespedes. He's a Jamaican Afro-Cuban actor and Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. O'Neill, thanks for joining us on Take Two. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, so uh, first off, what's your take on the phrase defund the police? I definitely do believe it's a uh, polarizing phrase. So when you hear a term defund the police, it automatically sends people into shock. And like the president said, you're going to lose a lot of ears. But I think if you take a deeper look at the actual phrase and the meaning of it, you'll understand that we aren't saying strip the police of every single ounce of funding that they're receiving. Um, What people are saying is that it needs to be allocated in a better way. But O'Neill, when you say that you don't want to take all the money away from police, I mean, I've had a conversation with Melina Abdullah of Black Lives Matter L.A., and she says uh, defund the police isn't enough, that dissolving the police is the proper step. So how do you square both of those thoughts together? I think that because there's been such an unfair amount of money being allocated to the police, that there are some extreme thoughts on that. Like, let's just take everything away from them because they, they are underserving and overserving the community at the same time. You know, uh, I'm a person of color. I see what the police have done. You know, we have experienced certain things as people of color that other people haven't experienced. So our take on it sometimes can be, for lack of a better word, radical. But I think if you look at it in its totality, we're not saying strip them completely of every single thing. We know that if we didn't have police in certain communities, it, it would be a war zone. Now, I want to play uh, for you a clip that went viral last summer. A protester named Ty Hobson Powell, who was in uh, Washington, D.C. Here he is breaking down the meaning of the phrase uh, defund the police. When we say defund the police, it means to revisit public safety systems in favor of a thing that translates to justice for all, not justice for some. When we say abolish, it's the understanding that police are funded with taxpayer dollars. Police stations stand up because of taxpayer dollars. They get new cruisers, shields, etc. because of taxpayer dollars. That means that they are a service, and they're a service that is answerable to us. If they're not answerable to us in the ways that we want, we can demand new service, and that's what this is. Abolish the police in favor of whatever that new service will be, whatever that new service is that resembles justice that the people decide on. Now, O'Neill, obviously a long explanation, and we didn't even play all of it, uh, but I'm wondering for you if that better illustrates what the point behind defund the police is. I mean, based on what you heard him say. I think it was perfectly illustrated by him. I think when he says revisiting the service, that is something we need to do. Look, if we take it on a deeper level that I don't hear most people even talk about, right? Let's talk about looking at how long it takes to become a police officer. 15 to 16 weeks, sometimes six months. Think about that. Six months of training in combat, weapons, basically being a counselor because they're called to deal with people with mental health issues, de-escalating certain uh, issues and circumstances. We're asking a lot, and this is just a fragment of issues with the police. They're given uniforms that are heavy, big belts. We're asking them to chase down assailants in dress shoes with about 30 pounds of gear on them. And then oftentimes we send these individuals into black and brown communities that they didn't even grow up in they can't even relate to. That is a recipe for disaster. Undertrained, afraid, and unfamiliar. How can any good come out of that? 
Now, when it comes to what Ty was talking about, let the people decide on where the money goes. I think that would be different in different parts of the city, right? Say say in the San Fernando Valley and say Encino or Woodland Hills, that would be different than, say, in South Los Angeles or by Exposition Park. So how do you decide what people decide on where money goes? That's a great question. We do need to take a uh, individual look at every community as opposed to creating this cookie cutter service and then sending it out and saying that it's applicable to all. Because in truth, it is not. Considering, O'Neill, how nuanced you know our discussion has been just so far on the meaning of the phrase defund the police, is there a better phrase that would sum it up? Is there something that would illustrate it perfectly? Because it seems like it's, it's a tricky few words to try and relate to. You know what? I think that phrase needs to be that strong and that radical to shake up the system. Because oftentimes, if it is you know uh, politically correct, so to speak, things won't get done. So, O'Neill, what do you think, then, is at the root of resistance to the phrase defund the police? Forget about everything that would, it would mean uh, policy-wise or with budgets. What, what do you think the resistance is to the phrase defund the police? Where do you think it's rooted from? Most of the resistance is coming from, let's be honest, people that aren't of color, right? Because it's, it, it's, it's a, it doesn't bother them. They don't get nervous when a police officer is behind them when they're on Fairfax. They don't have to worry about that if their kids get pulled over, that their kids have to have their hands on the steering wheel, looking straight ahead, not making any sudden movements. In a way, in a strange way, I get it. I understand. If it works for you and your people, of course you don't want anything to be um, changed or anything like that. But when you're a person of color, that's, that's, a whole, that's a whole other thing. And I think it's insulting to ask us to sit and continue to accept the ways that we're being treated by the police and the things that are happening in our communities. You know, because if the shoe was on the other foot, they wouldn't take it. It's kind of like when my, my white friends would always tell me, hey, man, you know, things are better for black people, right? Equality is here. There's more black pe- people on television and whatnot. And I would give them an example and say, if I was an alien and I came to this planet and I wanted to learn about this planet through television, I would think the planet was populated by 99.9% white people because that's all I see on television. <laughs> Right? Yeah. So it's the same thing. We're talking to O'Neill Cespedes, Jamaican Afro-Cuban actor and Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. O'Neill, so when it comes to the pushback on the phrase defund the police, I mean, you've got one group of people that, that is screaming at the top of their lungs that, that not doing anything about it and, and having pushback to this phrase is costing lives, is costing innocent people their lives. And you've got this other group that's saying, well, why do you have to say defund um, as opposed to maybe a, a different word that's more palatable to them? I mean, how, how do you explain that to people who don't like the term, who, who, who thinks it's something that would mean that they're getting something taken away from them. How do you explain to them that it's not about that? I don't really know that you can, to be honest with you. I think that if you're not of the mindset to try to understand, looking at it from our point of view, I don't think that it's something that we can turn people over to. I really don't. Not giving this some serious thought, you know, and if they can't take it upon themselves to do the research, if they can't take it upon themselves to um, try and understand why we feel the way we feel, then they'll probably never understand. Yeah, and it also goes back to how, you know, the phrase Black Lives Matter. That also has been twisted in ways that uh, that it wasn't intended to be twisted. And now defund the police can probably fall in that category as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm in total agreement with that. The fact that we have to say Black Lives Matter is a ridiculous thing. On a lot of levels, some of these statements that we have to uh, make, the way we have to march and, and defend ourselves in certain ways, I, it's ridiculous because to the naked eye, you should see what the problem is. It's painfully clear. So to have these arguments and these conversations is almost borderline irrational now. 
Have you had uh, interactions with police that you think would have been better handled by, say, a non-law enforcement agency? Because that's one of the things about defund the police and that police wouldn't have to go to every single call that they get, that some might be better handled by by other people with maybe a better expertise for that particular situation. Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. Uh, <laughs> you know, from my point of view and from what I've seen, there's a higher percentage of officers that would would rather handle things in an aggressive manner. And, 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 and you know, I don't want to just say attribute all of that to a um a bad mentality a lot of the time you know fear has a lot to do with it because they're not properly trained so if some of that money if some of that money that typically we we fund police with goes to instead of armoring up police training police better that could make los angeles uh, look a lot different for black and brown people 100 percent. and when we say defund them and reallocate the resources that's I, that's what I believe the, the, the core of it should be, right? When when COVID hit, the fact that hospital workers were lacking in certain things that they need to, to serve patients, yet the police officers had riot gear, ammunition, guns, squad cars, and they were completely funded and everything. That's absurd. The police get too much money and they do too little. That's just a fact. Wondering, O'Neill, as a as a black man and as a dad, how much faith do you have in the defund the police movement? That 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 change can actually occur in a time where you and your kids might be able to benefit from it. No, that's a great question, and and to answer it plainly, I don't know. I just have hope. I just have hope. This is an institution that's been around for a long, long time, and things don't change overnight. They don't. I believe that's why the term defund the police has to stay the way it is. It has to stay as radical as it is, because this is an institution that's been around for so long. Something radical needs to come along to smash it. It can't be subtle and it can't be nuanced. That's O'Neill Cespedes, Jamaican, Afro-Cuban actor and Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. O'Neill, thank you very much. Thank you. So far, we've talked about how to be an ally, code switching, and defund the police. Now, the whole reason we're even doing a special on racism, and that's America's history of slavery. That's next when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Black people. Back now with this special edition of Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and most places you get your podcasts. I'm e. Martinez. Today we're highlighting the people and conversations of the Racism 101 Project, where listeners have come together to candidly discuss race and racism in modern society. We can't have a frank conversation about race without looking at the legacy of slavery in this country. That's because it's everywhere, from street names and monuments to redlining and systemic racism. With us to talk about confronting the legacy of slavery is another member of our Racism 101 team, Donna Simone Johnson. She's a black queer artist, activist, and mother. Donna, thanks for making the time. Of course. Thank you for having me. Now, earlier this month, on the same exact steps of the U.S. Capitol, we saw one week insurrectionists, white supremacists, many of them waving Confederate flags, storming that building. And two weeks after that, 
Kamala Harris, a woman who's born from a mother uh, from India and a Jamaican father, gets sworn in as vice president of the United States. What were your feelings on, on these juxtaposing events? Well, I can say that um, because I do know just a bit about American history, I saw the insurrectionists coming and I, uh, I did not expect that our president would fan those flames or that uh, these, um, I'm going to call them domestic terrorists, um, would have the access that they were able to have. And like everyone else, I was in tears, you know, when I saw Kamala Harris be sworn in. And it is powerful. There are times when we can get really narrow sighted. And I say we as people who are um, activists or community sure. organizers or working directly in communities, um, that we can get a bit narrow sighted in the frustration that 400 years later, we are still having the same issues that we had in 1619 in terms of just asking to be humanized. And so it was really powerful to see that and say, no, you know, we have come so far. And it's, it's a gorgeous thing. And I do believe that the next four years, we will be propelled in a rate that we have not been actually for the last 20. I do believe that there is a, um, a collective understanding about the impacts of slavery now that we didn't have 10 years, even 15 years and much less, you know, four years yeah. ago. And Donna, I think there was a lot of people that were in tears for both uh, in tears, watching the insurrection because of what uh, statement that sent to the world. And then in tears two weeks later, when they saw Kamala Harris get sworn in in tears for two different reasons. Yeah, and disbelief for two different reasons yeah, as well. Right. <laughs> but I mean, and that is the split of America, smack dab down the middle. Um, and there is a unity in there. But yeah, two very disparate experiences that that evoked a lot of emotion. Absolutely. And Donna, I think it's safe to say that the phrase liberty and justice for all has never really applied to every single American. That that certainly came up during protests in the summer of 2020 and also in the way insurrectionists were recently treated by law enforcement. So how has the historical irony of that phrase, liberty and justice for all, informed what we saw and heard over the summer? I think it's it's laughable. I believe it is simply because, again, you know, the, the, the men who are talking about these things and signing these documents all had slaves and women were excluded from this. And so it is part of American history that the majority gets to decide who gets power in America and who does not. But it's that I don't know that that has ever been the case, that there is liberty and justice for all. And I talk about liberation a lot as we say words like Black Lives Matter right? We are simply saying that we exist as people. And 402 years later, we are still saying that, hey, we're human, right? And so that that, that clause is problematic. And, and you know, we, we look at like the uh, Star Spangled Banner, right? Also written by a slaveholder. And luckily, we are in a place now where people are starting to recognize this and change some of the ways that we revere these people. I don't know that we're going to see liberty and justice for all in a very long time. But I also believe that it starts day to day and that that is getting better. Donna, do you think that the stain and shame of slavery is so strong that even white Americans who are not racist don't want to discuss it or cringe at discussing uh, America's history with slavery because of that of that shame? Absolutely. And that's a normal human response. 
So then how do we get over that part? Because there's plenty of people that don't want to either talk about it because they feel, well, it's not happening now. Like it's not happening in the way it happened way back then. But in very subtle ways, it still is happening. So how do, how do we break through that stain of shame to try and have these conversations that, that will produce uh, results? Well, it starts with knowledge. I mean, as, as I mentioned from Birth of a Nation, 1915, African-Americans have always been portrayed as criminals. That's not far removed. That mass incarceration became um, a replacement for slavery. That's not far removed. That corporate interests shape prison population. It used to be rum, cotton, now it's infrastructure. It's always been the medical in uh, industry. But first, someone has to go out of their way to learn about the true history of America. And once you do that, then yeah, you are in a position then to talk to other people and help. And I don't believe it lies on the backs of those who have been marginalized over time. It really has to be the people who understand that they now have responsibility in a way that their four people did not to actually move the country forward in philosophy and in action. It almost feels like it's been really tragically funny over the years, uh, you know, how Americans value history in so many different areas, history in sports, history in movies, history in everything except that. That's the one part of our history that never really wants to rise up to be something to be discussed because of what it represents. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It, and it's uncomfortable for me to talk about it as well. I would rather not spend the majority of my time in these spaces having these conversations. But I'm doing this labor in hopes that for the next generation, there will be less people who have to do it because our school books would actually show what the full history of America is. I think if we acknowledge that and also gave proper reparations, then we could move past it. And when I say move past it, I mean really socially community-based, that we could actually move toward this idea of liberty and justice for all. But it does require being uncomfortable, and that might last for generations. So on the topic of reparations, because I've had this, this conversation about reparations with other people who have said that too often reparations is seen as a cash transaction, as, a, okay, we'll give you this amount of money, now stop talking about it and move on. But reparations, Donna, and correct me if I'm wrong, it can be in different forms. It doesn't necessarily have to be a check. Oh, absolutely. I mean, personally, I don't want a check. <laughs> I feel like I'm being, I'm being sold off if we want to, you know, be very honest about it. Reparations can come in the form of, of student loan forgiveness. Reparations could come in the form of um, discounted mortgage rates, right, which would help our communities and help integration a lot simpler and get rid of some of these uh, food deserts and other issues that perpetuate within our communities. Reparations could happen um, in the way of, of laws, right, in, in creating space for people who have been historically marginalized to be able to not only be at the table, have a voice at the table, but also speak first for a bit. All of those things can show up as a way to say, hi, I value you. Let's move forward better together. Now, from statues of uh, Confederate soldiers to Junipero Serra, that's the Spanish priest who helped colonize California, people all over have been rallying to get rid of these symbols of racism and oppression. Uh, Donna, how, how do you think these kinds of things should be addressed? I think exactly as they are being addressed. You learn about missions in fourth grade, but you don't learn the true history of it. America tends to put up these sort of statues and herald some of these colonizers. I'm glad it's controversial now, and I'm glad that people are taking action and making sure that we don't continue to um, put them in positions of being revered. What do you think are some of the lesser known, maybe less overt legacies of slavery that we live with each and every day? 
I do believe that corporatization lies the, as the root of most evils. And I believe it is also the root of slavery. I mean, we were brought here in order to do work, right? In order to build a country and provide a financial infrastructure that was separate from Britain. And the reason that we moved away from Britain was because they wanted to regulate slavery. But anything from, I mean, we've been talking a lot in uh, Racism 101 about tone policing, um, this which is an idea of power. Racial hierarchy, again, that's power. It's part of American history to dominate groups of people. And it is also a part of a history to be able to rank who might be able to uh, serve communities in certain ways. And we, we exist within that. Wow. Donna, it, it feels, though, that maybe, maybe change is coming faster than we've seen in this country for, for some time. Uh, what more would you like to see uh, to move away from the legacy of slavery? I would love for people to speak about it, to talk about it, to learn about it. I don't mind talking about the legacy of slavery. I do mind having to explain respectability politics to someone. I don't want to have to sit around and explain to you why it's racist to touch my hair. That feels like labor. Explaining the history of slavery does not because that no one was taught that. I was only taught that at home. I believe that these kinds of conversations can really help us to all have a collective understanding. And once we understand what the foundation is, and we all really get with how porous and complex that foundation is, well, then we can add what we need in order to help things grow and become better. That's Donna Simone Johnson, a black queer activist, artist, and mother, and a member of our Racism 101 Project. Donna, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All's my life I has to fight all's my life, ah, hard times like, yeah, we gon' be all right. The Racism 101 Project was created and produced by Dana Emma here and Juliana Mayo. All Racism 101 participants were compensated for the time and the emotional labor that they contributed to the project. Through our participants' work uh, ends with the special, our work is just beginning. And Racism 101 is part of LAS Race in LA series. For more from Racism 101, just go to LAS.com slash Racism 101. That's LAS.com slash Racism 101. Tell my mama I love her, but this what I like, Lord knows. 20 of them in my Chevy, tell them all to come and get me reaping everything. And that is the reason why we have all these conversations. Because eventually, as Kendrick says, we will be all right. At least that's the hope. Follow me on Twitter, at AMartinezLA. That's at AMartinezLA. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take two is back tomorrow at 2. Talk to you then. <laughs>